God with us. So let's talk about the nature of prophecy. Prophecy has a fulfillment. Now, here we're speaking of the foretelling of events as prophecy. That is, where something that hasn't happened, right, by, under the authority of God, God proclaims that it will. Well, if he says that it will happen, it will happen. Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly. If you joined us last time, you heard as Pastor Chris Reiser introduced us to Joseph, who was soon to be married to Mary. An angel of the Lord informed Joseph that Mary was a sinless virgin who was pregnant with a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. The angel comforted Joseph and encouraged him to carry out his marriage vows to Mary. But is the virgin birth really that important? Let's listen as Pastor Chris demonstrates the significance of the virgin birth in the conclusion to the sermon titled, The Birth of Jesus. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The angel's prediction is there will be a son that comes right there without ultrasounds. Right? You don't get to go see, oh, there's, there's a son. The angel already knows this. It's a boy. Right? He predicts this. But that the son will be the Messiah. He, you will name him. You will call him, his name, Jesus. This is the Greek word for Joshua, or really, it means Yahweh is salvation. And of course, this is the perfect name because he was Yahweh who brings salvation. The God, man, the God in human flesh. Jesus, a human name for a human baby who was to be born, and yet that human baby was truly God, truly Yahweh, the great and mighty and awesome God of the Old Testament. And those, the Jews reading this, that would have just leaped out at them, the word Jesus, Joshua. Here, really kind of dragged as a transliteration in, in, into Greek from the Old Testament. Would have borne all of the connotations of Joshua. And really, he defines the name. The angel defines the name. He will be, you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. He is the Savior. That's why you call him Jesus. Yahweh will bring salvation. Well, he's going to bring salvation. And so you name him according to what he will actually do. And this is what Jesus, in fact, did. And then this son will be the Messiah. He will save his people from their sins. Not, a, not an economic salvation. Not a political salvation. But a salvation from sin and death and hell. At least not that kind of salvation at this time. He came, this first coming, to conquer sin, to save his people from the assured death and hell which would result from their being under the, under the condemnation of Adam and their being under, of the tainted nature of Adam and their, of commi their committing the actual sinful deeds of Adam. This is how they were condemned. And he, this baby, will save the people from their, his people from their sins. Now, the angel gives a command here as well. He gives comfort, he gives a prediction, and the angel gives a command, and he says, take Mary as your wife. Uh, again, uh, of course, right? Of course, you know, now all this took place. Well, we won't move to that next. He says, take Mary as your wife. Why? Because he is this Savior, and essentially, this is necessary in order for him to be the Savior that he's promised to be. Joseph, enter into God's sovereignty. And this is a beautiful picture of how God's sovereignty works through individuals who make choices, because the angel comes and says, you, got, you have a decision to make. I'm commanding you. I'm saying, do this. And in time and space, there's a possibility that he won't. But in God's sovereign plan, there's no possibility that he won't. Now, 
Let me take one second to explain that to you. Okay, I'm done. I don't have any idea how to explain that to you. <laughs> Joseph is an individual who makes choices and is challenged to do what is right, and yet in God's sovereign plan, this will happen. You are an individual responsible before a holy God to make right choices, and yet God's sovereignty says that his will will always be done. Now, many of you wrestle with that. Who wouldn't? But this is what the Scripture declares. And so this is what we believe. And we see it worked out. It's not like Scripture declares it and then doesn't talk about it. You have it right here. Make the right choice. He's the Messiah. If I don't make the right choice, does that undo him? We don't go there. There's no way to get there because he did make the right choice. And we're thankful to God and his sovereignty that he works out what he requires. Now, Joseph's prophetic prominence. There's a, a bit of a break in the narrative here. Right? So Matthew breaks in and explains this. Right? So he's been working through the narrative, what's going on with Joseph, what the angel says. And then he says, now all this took place to fulfill. Here we have the fulfillment speech, the fulfillment phrase. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So let's talk about the nature of prophecy. Prophecy has a fulfillment. Now, here we're speaking of the foretelling of events as prophecy. That is, where something that hasn't happened, right, by, under the authority of God, God proclaims that it will. Well, if he says that it will happen, it will happen. It's like, well, it might happen. If it's true prophecy, it will always happen. Understand that prophecy also encompasses the foretelling, or excuse me, the foretelling of God's word, that is, giving his principles and his commands. That is also and equally authoritative when it comes to the mouth of a prophet, either one. They're foretelling an event. It is absolutely certain it will happen. It's authoritatively God's word. They are foretelling the principles and character and nature of God. That is absolutely authoritative when it comes to a prophet. There, there's no other understanding of prophecy anywhere in Scripture, old or new. That's what's going on here. Saying, look, this, this, all this took place to fulfill the prophecy. That is, to complete it, to bring it to completion, to its designated end. So prophecy has a fulfillment. Prophecy is spoken by the Lord. Notice what he says. This was spoken by the Lord. But then he says, through the prophet. So it is the Lord's word. This is the word of the Lord, oftentimes the prophets would say. But it is spoken through the prophets, men, those who speak on God's behalf. Prophecy is always direct revelation from God, and it's always authoritative. Now, the prophecy being spoken of here is Isaiah 7.14. So let's look there for a moment. And, and we will begin the discussion on how is this actually a fulfillment of prophecy. This is, by the way, going to become ever increasingly difficult as we move through Matthew. This one is fairly clear. There are other places in Matthew where statements are being made and sentences are given that say they are fulfilling prophecy, and you're like, wow, I'm not, I, I'm not sure how to get there. Well, let's begin the process by looking at this one this morning. Turn back to Isaiah, and we'll get a little bit of, of context here in Isaiah chapter 7. I think just to, to say at the outset, what we're going to find is that when it says it is the fulfillment of the prophecy, the completion of it, it clearly, I think certainly in biblical terms, leaves room for a, a fulfillment in the time, the historical time when the prophecy was made, and then the completion of that fulfillment, not a second fulfillment, not an additional fulfillment, but the completion of it as it moves into the New Testament, if it's either fulfilled by Christ or events surrounding the person of Christ, right, the, the end times or whatever it might be. So in Isaiah 7.14, actually we'll begin with verse 10, where we have a, an historical king here, right, Ahaz, and there is that the prophet is coming to him and, and, and bringing a message from the Lord. So in verse 3, the Lord said to Isaiah, go meet Ahaz, right? So this is a, a physical situation going on. The Lord spoke to Ahaz again, and this would be through 
Isaiah, saying, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says somewhat self-righteously, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Ahaz lived his life to test the Lord. Pagan. Nonetheless, he's getting all spiritual now. Then he said, then the prophet says, Listen now, O house of David. Ahaz has a reflection of that. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't ask for one, you get one. Behold, a virgin will be with child, will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy, and I don't think there's any way to see the boy there as other than the initial fulfillment of this prophecy. The boy will know enough to refuse good and evil. Behold, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken." It seems to me, it seems to me clear, it doesn't seem to all, and there, there's a variety of opinion on this, that this initial, the prophecy has an initial fulfillment or the beginning of the fulfillment in the time of Ahaz. A child was born to a young woman who had not had relations with a man prior, right? Not the first virgin birth as without a man at all, but born to a woman who had not been with a man prior. However, as you continue through Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9 and through Isaiah, and of course, as you move into the New Testament, what you find is that this prophecy has a completion in Christ. It's, it's, it's the end of its completion comes with a virgin who had never been with a man, with a, a the virgin birth that comes from God himself, and it culminates in that. It doesn't undo what was promised to Ahaz. It finds its final or its complete mature fulfillment in Christ. And, and I think we will see that, we will see that with a, with a variety of prophecies throughout that, that are given in the Old Testament that Matthew then says, this is fulfilled in Christ. Because sometimes we're looking, no wait, that happened then. That doesn't keep it right, from, from in the intent of God to have it be finished in Christ or in events surrounding Christ. Now again, we'll discuss that more and try to talk through it as best we can. But I believe that's the best understanding of how Old Testament prophecy then can move into New Testament fulfillment with those in the Old Testament having full understanding that what was being prophesied then was something that would happen, as well as, and particularly in this case, as you move through the book of Isaiah, that they also had an understanding that there was more to come, that it wasn't done, that it was something that was coming ahead or would be fulfilled ahead, and rarely did they know the fullness of those things. Sometimes they didn't know it at all. Right? It was an understanding for that day, but then a time when it would be fulfilled either in Christ or in events surrounding Christ or, or in history that progresses forward. So that's the specific prophecy. Right? The virgin will be with child. The child will have a son. The son will be named Emmanuel. Now, back to our text. I also think it's important to, to make mention here. The prophecy in Isaiah says that he will, uh, she will bear a son, be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, Jesus was never called. We, we don't have any reference anywhere where Jesus actually is given that name, where somebody comes up to him and says, hey, Emmanuel. They called him Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. And I think it appears to me the best understanding of the text that the reason that this name then is translated is because, remember, names can be used for in several ways. It can be the actual title, someone is called that, or they are the representation of the character and nature of that person. God has many names that he has given that are a, a testament to his character. And that seems to be the case here. Because he translates the name. And fascinating because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And, and the idea or the, the name Emmanuel would have been written down in Greek, but essentially a transliteration of a name. What does it actually mean? And if you didn't know Hebrew, remember, essentially or most likely Matthew's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this would be in Greek, and he wrote it in Greek. 
He's dragging the name, though, from the Old Testament as a transliteration, so he has to explain it for those who didn't know their Hebrew and didn't know what the name Emmanuel actually meant. So he does. And he says the name translated means God with us. Why does he bring out the translation? Because that's the nature of who Jesus was. It was not a title that was given to him in this case. It was a representation of who he was, God with us. Fully and completely God, fully and completely man. So over and over in this text, we have the emphasis on Jesus as man of the line of David, of of the seed of Abraham, and Jesus as God, the Savior, Yahweh who saves, and here, God with us. And I believe that's the primary focus of that name. He is the one who had to be with us to save. He came to save us. Now, there are many other things associated with God being with us. I think the primary, primary focus of the text is he, be, he became with us, the God who was with us, because it was the only way to save us. But let me mention a few other things that, that are bound up in the idea of God coming to be with us, Christ leaving aside his glory and stepping down into this world to be humbled in that way and then humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, he was, in fact, with us in our world. This would be underneath um, the specific prophecy and that his name is Emmanuel. He's with us in our world. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He did not stay in heaven. He did not wait there and somehow demand from us that we would earn our own salvation. He came to pay it for us. He came to do the work for us. And so it bound up in God with us is that he walked on this earth. He was the reflection of God to us. And then he was the God who died, the human who died, right? The human Jesus, yet the full God-man who could then pay the penalty and rise again because he was eternally God as well. He was with us in this world. He was with us in our humanity. He could not enter into the world to be our Savior unless he also clothed himself with flesh and blood. This is what Hebrews 2.14 says. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. God cannot die. But the God-man can because he is man as well. And so he takes on flesh. I mean, do you get that? He takes on flesh so that he can die because God never could. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. I don't know other way to put that. It's absolutely un, incomprehensible. He actually took on flesh for the purpose of dying, not simply for empathizing with us. It's so, much, it's so, much, you know, so often emphasized today so he could hang out with us, so that he could you know, feel our pain. He had to become God so he could die. And that's the purpose for which he came above all other purposes. Who would not worship this God? He is truly your Messiah, the one who took on flesh, who was with you, who came and actually had to become man for the purpose of dying. Certainly, he took on the frailty of our flesh. He was tired. He was hungry. He took on the frailty even in being tempted. Hebrews 2.18, he was tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. He took on our grief and pain. He wept when a relationship was taken, when death took loved ones. At the evil of sin, he wept and grieved over these things. He felt that pain, in fact, to a far greater degree than we ever could because of his infinitely holy nature. He feels grief and pain, did feel it more greatly than any person. And then he also, he was with us in death. He was the one who went to the grave for us, experiencing death. Again, 
and not simply physical death, but experiencing death in a way that you and I could never experience it because his death came at the hands of the wrath of God poured out upon him. There's only, well, no one, no human will ever feel the full weight of the wrath of God. You know why I can say that? Because even if you do not repent and believe, you will spend eternity feeling the weight of God, but it will never be fully satisfied. That's why hell is eternity. You could never and can never fully feel the wrath of God because it's impossible. It's infinite. Jesus felt it. He experienced it as he went to the grave. Unbelievable. This is the God that we serve. He took this for you. And if you are a believer then, you will never experience the wrath of God against your sin because it is fully taken in Christ. There's no wrath left for you. Not an ounce, not a drop anywhere in the universe left for you to take. Because he took it all. That's what Emmanuel, God with us, means. Yes, it's, it's a joyful thing that he would become a man and walk among us. But it is an unbelievably awesome thing that he would become man so that he could even die and take upon himself the wrath of a holy God against sin. Emmanuel, who, though he was infinitely rich, became poor, assumed our human nature, entered into our sin-polluted atmosphere without ever being tainted by sin himself, took upon himself our guilt, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. He went to heaven to prepare a place for us, sent his spirit into our hearts, governs the entire universe on our behalf, not only makes intercession for us, but lives forever to make intercession for us. And he will come again to take us, not just to heaven, but far more tenderly to be with himself. Truly, this is the one who became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. This is Emmanuel, God with us, William Hendrickson. Now lastly here as we finish out, we see Joseph's personal obedience. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Joseph immediately obeys. Why? Because words from the Lord are to be obeyed. And words that come from an angel who is speaking from God are to be obeyed. So he obeys immediately and he obeys completely. He takes Mary as his wife. That is, he finishes out the marriage contract. And yet it says that he does not finish it out in the physical sense, and then he keeps her a virgin. He does not enter into physical union with her. We don't see that specifically commended. It seemed that it seemed best to Joseph in wisdom that he would not be with her so that it would be very clear that this could not ever have been, that the child could not ever have been a result of a human union. But as we close, I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Because I think sometimes we, again, we look and we say, well, again, of course, Joseph obeyed because he heard an angel. Mary obeyed because an angel showed up and, and appeared to her. If we only had that, we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If we only had those kind of appearances, which many claim today, that God will do or He is doing and that that is necessary for us to believe, if we only had that, well, I'd like to show to you in Scripture that not only is that necessary, but there is something that speaks more strongly, more firmly, more authoritatively than an angel from heaven, as it were, if the, as that were possible. Second Peter chapter 1 beginning in, in verse 16. For we did not follow, this is the Apostle Peter speaking, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's speaking of the Mount of Transfiguration. Or Jesus in his glory, just a glimpse is seen, and God himself speaks and says, this is my beloved son. And Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses. We saw this. This is our testimony. But it's almost then, as then he moves to, well, and so what am I leaving you with? Because he's writing to them a letter, and it's like, are you secondary citizens now? We, he's trumping, we were the eyewitnesses, and you just get what I write? Well, I think if the way this next verse is interpreted, the way that it's written in the New American Standard, that's almost the case. We, we saw him. It was impressive for us, but all you get is this word that we're writing to you. It's made more sure because we're eyewitnesses, but we, we're the ones that had, had the real privilege. No, verse 19 says this. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars, star arises in your hearts. Now bear with me here. In the New American Standard, it says there's a so that's in italics and a maid that's in italics. That's an interpretational decision which says... What Peter is really saying is that he was the eyewitness. Now, you, now, because he was eyewitness, that makes it more sure, the prophetic word that you have. So that's a good thing. I think it's much stronger than that. If you have an ESV, which I think God gets it right here, there is no sure and there is no made. And what the Greek actually says is this. We have the prophetic word more sure. What we receive in Scripture is better than eyewitness testimony because you will never have eyewitness testimony until Christ returns again in his second coming. You are not going to see Christ transfigured. He's gone back to heaven. There are not apostles now to even even to directly state to you this truth. You have the scripture, and the scripture is more sure. Why do I think that's the right interpretation? One, that's what the Greek says. It's not added. Nothing's added. But look what he says. You would do well to pay attention to this more sure prophetic word as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The contrast is, we saw Christ on the mountain, a bit of the transfiguration, a bit of his glory. You see him in scripture. And every time you read scripture, you have the light shining in your hearts with you every day, all the time. You don't need to stand on the mountain. You have the word more sure. Do you view scripture that way? Are you waiting for an angel to come and show up for you and then you would believe? some kind of manifestation of the Spirit maybe that will, that will speak to you, that will be more sure to you, what you have is more sure. You have the full canon of Scripture, everything that God said you needed to know. And it is the light. The Spirit of God, by His illumination and His strength, causes it to be the light which shines in your dark heart. It is the means of your salvation and of the salvation of every person on the face of the earth. That is the only place everyone who will be saved will be saved through the prophetic word, more sure. What an amazing thought. That's what Matthew is writing to you. The prophetic word is more sure. You know, well, if I was back there, I would believe. If I was back there, my, my, certainly my faith would be stronger because I would see it happen. Again, I tell you, that's not the testimony of those who were there. It wasn't stronger. And it's not the testimony of Scripture. It wouldn't be stronger. It's stronger now. You have the Spirit of God. You have the fullness of the content of the Word of God. Would it be that you would step forward in joy at the sureness of what you know that He is, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, born to Mary with Joseph as legal father because Joseph names him at the end. This is Jesus. He takes him and says, I will take this child that the world will say is illegitimate, I say is not. 
And I say he is the king. So Matthew says, would you bow to him as king? And would you live for him fully because you have the prophetic word more sure? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of the word of God that we have been given and the power of the spirit of God that we have been granted that our dead heart was brought to life, that we might understand and, and know this word and that we might have the desire to live this word that you have brought to us and you have made possible for us through your work on the cross. Lord, I thank you that you sent your son to be God with us, that you would stoop so far as to come and take on human flesh for the very purpose of having that flesh, that life snuffed out. Help us to love you, to serve you, to respond to you out of, out of an awe-filled joy that you would do this on our behalf. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Well, thank you again for joining us on Grace Maryville Weekly. Pastor Chris Reiser has shown us that the virgin birth ensured Jesus' divine nature and his claim to be the Messiah, Savior, and King. The resurrection and ascension would be hoaxes and mankind would remain damned were it not for the virgin birth. The virgin birth assured Jesus is the God-man spoken of by an angel to Joseph. But as Pastor Chris has demonstrated, we have the word of God, which is more sure and important than an angel's words. If you would like to find out more about Grace Community Church, please visit us at gracemaryville.org. There you can read our statement of faith and our distinctives as well as review our audio and video archive, which includes sermons, Sunday school lessons, and sermons from our many guest speakers at our SOLA conferences and our Essentials conferences. We would love to have you worship with us in person if you're ever in East Tennessee. Our address, phone number, and email information can all be found at gracemaryville.org. Join us again soon as Pastor Chris continues in an exegetical look at the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.